day. Good morning. We are in the middle of a series called Seven and a Half Minutes to a Rock Solid Life. Okay? And it's based on what? Come on, you tell me what we're going through right now. What are we going to work through? It'll be this, the, the Christmas trees will be up by the time we're done with this series. What are we working through week by week? It's called? I'm so The Sermon on the Mount. Good. Yeah, it's, it takes place at the very beginning of, of Jesus' ministry where he hasn't even called all his disciples yet. He finds himself up on this hill. Lots of people around there listening to him, and he says, uh, hey, let's, let's talk. Brings his disciples, sits down, and he preaches this sermon. And when he's all done with the sermon, he says, these things that I just told you are so important. This is what he says at the end of the sermon. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine And puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Then he goes on to say, But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. In other words, he says, Look what I just told you. That sermon I just preached is so important that if you go out and you do it, you will have a rock-solid life. And it's called Seven and a Half Minutes to a Rock-Solid Life because you can read the entire Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes, which means if you want to for the next sermon, you can read it a few times and really get familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. If I read it, as I told you, my normal speed takes me four. If I slow it down at six, if I just take my time, it takes me about seven and a half minutes. But we have to read this together. We said we do it almost every week. Here it is. I can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes, but to be rock solid, I have to put it into practice every day. One more time. I can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes, but to be rock solid, I have to put it into practice every day. Just the ladies this time. Ladies, let's read it together. I can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes, but to be rock solid, I have to put it into practice every day. Men with that great baritone. Here we go. Men together. I can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes, but to be rock solid, I have to put it into practice every day. Are you getting that? I hope so. Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes. These were eight sayings that kind of redefine winners and losers. Okay, because he's talking to the crowds. He's not talking to the rich and the powerful. They're not listening to him. It's just the crowds. And basically, in the Beatitudes, this is what he told them. The kingdom of God is not for the rich and powerful, the talented and aggressive go-getters who seem to rise to the top in everything and never seem to have to suffer for their mistakes. See, that's kind of the same all the world over and throughout all time. Doesn't it seem to you that the rich and powerful get away with murder? They get away with so much stuff. It's been that way for a long time. In fact, let me show you this passage of Scripture. It's from the Psalms. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here it is. When you see those rich and powerful people, this is what it seems like. They have no struggles. 
Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to men. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Okay, the rich and the powerful, the ones that, that seem to get it, they claim to know God. They claim that heaven is theirs. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? There seems to be something about the rich and the powerful that thinks that they can get away with anything right now. If you've been following the news, there is that rich and powerful, the leader of the International Monetary Fund, who was arrested for rape in New York City. Turns out that in France he had done it time and time and time and time again. But in France they have a different system of justice. In France, because of the old kingdom, they have a different idea of what rich and powerful can do. And everybody just turned and looked a different way. He came to America and found out it doesn't work quite that way here. And now he's facing prison for the first time in his life. But he thought he could get away with anything. He goes on to say, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. This writer Psalm says, you know, when I look at all the stuff they get away with, why have I worked so hard to be righteous? I've washed my hands in innocence all day long. I've been plagued. I have been punished every morning. In other words, he says, look, working for God, doing what's right, it hasn't got me anywhere. Now, fortunately, the rest of the psalm, he turns around and says, okay, I'm wrong. It is good. But this is what it seems like when you look at the rich and the foul. Now, let's fast forward about 2,000 years from the psalmist. We're going to fast forward about 3,000 years. Let's talk about the economic downturn that has hurt common people. Where did it come from? Now, I want to give you just a little hint. Illegal aliens and immigrants did not cause their economic downturn. Okay? We had many illegal immigrants when the economy was great. We have them now when it's, they didn't cause it. Public workers and teachers did not cause it. We had lots of public workers and teachers when the economy was great. They didn't cause it. What caused the economic downturn? Wall Street, the rich, the rich and powerful, who gambled, who put out misleading investments. And when their firms began to collapse, what happened? The government bailed them out. When the rich walked away, what happened? They walked away with a, what we call the golden parachute. Millions of dollars. Millions. Who is suffering from the economic downturn? The rich and the powerful? No. The people here. Some of you have been laid off, haven't you? Some of you have been laid off from your job. My wife just got a pink slip from teaching. Now, don't worry about us. We're fine. The Lord's brought us to a point where that's not going to hurt us. But she's a teacher. She loves to teach. She's a great teacher. There is no job for her. Because she's bad? Because we're bad? Because somebody back on Wall Street made stupid decisions and it trickles down. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. 
So he looked at these people, this group of people who suffered like that, only they suffered a whole lot worse because they lived day by day. And what he said to them was this. The kingdom of God is for the common, ordinary people who work hard and often smell bad, who always seem to take the brunt of the mistakes the rich and the powerful constantly make. Now, who were the only people back in those days who could afford perfume? Rich. They smelled nice. I've often wondered, this is kind of a strange thought, but I've often what would it smell like to live back there? There's no deodorant. They're wearing the long robe that they do in the Middle East. They work hard. It probably was a different aroma. That's a good word. <laughs> and Jesus looks at them and says, you know, it's, what he really says is this. And it's a life-changing message. It's an amazing message. Because what he was really saying to them in the Beatitudes is this. The kingdom of God, with all its blessings, is for you. And you could almost see all these people sitting there going, because no one told them that. In their culture, it was always for the rich, the powerful, the Pharisees, the rulers. They had the kingdom. They got it all. And Jesus said, no. Now they don't. The kingdom is for you. It's for people who are poor in spirit and it's for people who mourn. It's for people who are peacemakers. It's for people who go through difficult times. It's for people who want a pure heart above all else. It's for you. You get the kingdom. And you do. If nothing else is said here this morning, I just want you to know the kingdom's for you. God came to give it to you. You get it. When he was all done with the Beatitudes then, when he was all finished, he, uh, he told them this then, okay? The Beatitudes are finished, and he looks at them and he says this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know what? That statement actually seems a little odd, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound a whole lot like the last beatitude? Let me read the last beatitude for you. Here it goes. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of... That was the last beatitude. Then when he's done, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds... Doesn't... Why would he do that? This is the only beatitude that he actually personalizes. He goes from kind of speaking theoretically, blessed are those who, and then he looks at them and says, now, blessed are you. He looks right at them and says, now let's make this personal. He doesn't do that with any other beatitude. He does it with this beatitude. He repeats it twice. He repeats it twice. He repeated himself. He repeats it twice. Must be pretty important. When I repeat myself, it's usually because, well, I'm just not all that good. When he repeats himself, you better listen. Why? Come on. Why would he take this one beatitude and say, now let's really hammer it home? What? It's got to be important. Really important. Okay? What? They're about to be persecuted, that's for sure. Jesus as the Son of God, 
had complete integrity. There were so many misconceptions about the Messiah floating around at that time, okay? People were expecting Messiah. They'd been expecting Messiah for a long time. False Messiah had ridden up all over the place. And, and so they all had their own idea of what the Messiah was going to do. Much of Jesus' ministry is to straighten out their idea and to say now, let me tell you what's really going to happen. He wants the people to know what they are in for before they join him. Complete integrity. Sometimes the church of today misleads people that we present the gospel to. Sometimes we try to snooker them in. We don't want to tell them the truth. We tell them only the things that maybe they want to hear. So we say, hey, come to Jesus and be successful. Business going down the tubes, don't worry. Come to Jesus, fix it. Come to Jesus and get healed. You got a problem? He can heal you. Come, give him your life and you'll be healed. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. Because Jesus is sometimes presented that way, we, we tend to use a relationship with Jesus to get what we want. Jesus becomes a means to another end. He becomes a form of currency. How many of you would like a lot of money? My guess is you really don't. Only very, very sick people with weird ideas would want a lot of money. Because this is a piece of paper. That's all it is. I don't want a lot of money. I want the things that a lot of money will buy me. Money is just a piece of paper. It's what I can do with this money that I want. I want to accumulate a lot of these things so that then I can trade them in for what I really want. A car, a vacation, a new kitchen, a better body, or whatever. Enough money, you can do anything. But it isn't money that I want. It's those other things. This is just how I get it. For a lot of people, God is just currency. He's just something that they want so that they can use to get what they really want. And God just becomes another form of currency. Jesus is honest. And so he has to look at all the people who are thinking they want to follow him because he's the Messiah and he's going to set them straight right in the beginning. This is what he says. If you choose to follow me, you will be in two things, okay? If you choose to follow me, you will be in two things. An idea what those two things would be? Here they are. You will be in trouble, and you will be in good company. Okay? If you follow me, you will be in trouble, but don't worry, you will also be in good company. It happens to anybody that follows me, Jesus says. Trouble seems to find people who are really sold out to God. 
it's been happening a long, 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 long time. Since this is the Memorial Day weekend, I think it's a really good idea to remember some things. To remember what Jesus told us. To remember the cost and all the things that Jesus gives us. There are four things that I want you to remember if you decide to follow Jesus. If you want to be a Christ follower, here are four things to remember. And I made them all P words so you could remember. All right, be easier for you. Here they are. Ready? Persecution. Provision. Promise. Price. One more time. Read those with me, all right? Persecution, provision, promise, price. That's what you're going to get. And that's what you need to remember if you're going to be a Christ follower. Now, when this is all done, you may decide you don't want to do that because you're looking for just a currency that can straighten out your life. But Jesus won't promise you that. So before he does anything else, as he goes on with this sermon, he says, I want you to know what you're in for. And here it is. First, expect persecution. Expect it. You have to remember that he's talking to this early church. It isn't even a church as yet. But many of the very people that Jesus is talking to, many go back in, in your mind, see that however you vision it, whether it's a sunny day or a cloudy day or whatever it is, there's Jesus. He's sitting out on a mountaintop. The few disciples that he's already called are around him. Other people are listening in. Many of those people that he is listening to will die horrible deaths for Jesus Christ within just a few decades. Many of the very people that he's talking to will suffer severe persecution in just a few years. And he tells them, you better expect it. It came from the secular authorities, but it also came from the religious rulers. It was so tough, in fact, in the beginning. Many people lost their lives. Many people were crucified. Many people were cut in half. Some people lost everything. And Jesus knew that when he looked at them. He could look at it. He could see it. This is going to cost you, he says. You better expect it. It was so tough, in fact, that about mm, 30 years later, the writer to the book of, of, of to the Hebrews, the, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jews who are thinking about leaving Christianity. They were Jews, they became Christians, they're thinking of giving up Christianity to go back to Judaism. And that's what the whole book is about, trying to convince them, look, why would you want to go back to that? Stay with Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews wrote this to the church, the church that was suffering, the church that, that was thinking of going back. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Remember, when you first made a commitment to Jesus, what happened to you? Then he says this, you sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. And I was reading that when I read that passage. These were people who made a decision for Jesus and faced stiff opposition up to and including the loss of all their property by the government because they were Christ followers. And he says, you joyfully accepted 
the confiscation of your property. I wish he had not put in the word joyfully. Because I had to think, would I joyfully accept the confiscation of my property for being a Christ follower? If it became a crime to do so, and I lost everything, would I joyfully give up all the things that I've worked very hard to accumulate? I hope so. But I also hope I never have to find out. I don't want to go through this. But thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, or even more, have. It comes with the territory. The members of the early church were kicked out of the synagogue, the church of their day, ostracized, excommunicated, if you will, rejected, beaten, sometimes killed, all for the name of Jesus Christ. Just before his arrest, and I mean, he's about to pray one prayer in John 17, then he's going to be arrested. Just before he prays that prayer, this is what he tells his disciples. All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue, excommunicate you. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. This is not good news to them. But again, Jesus is not interested in just selling them a bill of goods. He says, I want you to know what you might face. And a few minutes later, he said this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You know, here in America, we don't face a whole lot of persecution from the government. We don't. Uh, the government is, is no longer as friendly to the church as it, as it once was, but they're really not persecuting us. The culture we live in, however, persecutes us mercilessly. Our culture denies our values. Our culture in which we immerse ourselves and our kids does not accept our values. Sometimes makes fun of those values, don't they? That's the persecution that all of us are facing today. Sometimes that persecution comes from your own family when you stand up and you do what is right for Jesus Christ and your family rejects it. About 35 years ago, I heard the testimony of a man when I was living down in Southern California. He, had, he came from a Jewish household. He accepted Jesus Christ. He was attending Azusa Pacific College at the time. He accepted Jesus Christ. His family gave him a week to renounce Jesus. He did not. He walked in a week later into his family's home. There was a coffin there. They were having his funeral. Nobody spoke to him. He was dead. He left, walked out of the house, and never saw them again. because he accepted Jesus. I've never had to face anything like that. But you know, the hardest persecution that I've ever had to face, it didn't come from the culture or my family. Where'd it come from? The church, yeah. Yeah. We're pretty good at persecuting one another. When um, something goes on you don't like, or we don't like, we don't get our way. We're really good at hurting one another. Lots of Christian leaders, I was just reading this last week, one guy's going to write a, a book called Righteously Mean Christians. 
with the whole, why is it that Christians are so mean to each other? I wonder. You just want to do what's right, and you stand up for what you think is right and what you believe is right. And instead of being met with grace, as the church should do, sometimes we're met with fierce opposition that becomes personal. It's just part of following Jesus. And it's also part of leading a church. It happens, guys. Our new uh, associate, Matt, has taken about this last year off. He's been... um, house husband. He's been raising their kids while he's been seeking God's will and looking for the church. And my, one of my questions to him when we first talked to him on, on the phone was, uh, Matt, are you ready to put the target back on? And when his wife got on the phone, I said, Jen, is Matt ready for the target? It's going to come. It's what you wear. Now, don't feel sorry for us. I'm not trying to get your sympathy. It just comes with the job, guys. The enemy knows that if they can take down the leader, there's a lot of pain. You know that, don't you? Some of you in this very room know. You've had your pastors who wore that target, who got hit big time. And what happened? It comes with a job. But you know what? It also comes with the name of Jesus. You all wear a target. If you're going to claim the name of Jesus Christ, there is a target on you. There is an enemy that would like to bring you down. And he's going to try to come at you any way he can. The government, if he can, right now, not too bad. The culture, oh my word, all the friends and family, people sitting next to you. So what do you do about that? Well, okay, if you remember that, that you're going to have the persecution, you also do this, you embrace the provision. There is provision for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Imagine, if you will, a coach of a football team that says, look, I'm going to go out there, you're going to go up against the Green Bay Packers, get out there, but he gives them no protection, no padding, no equipment. What's going to happen to that team? They're going to get creamed. A general who sends his armies, his soldiers out into fierce battle, no guns, no armor, no helmets, what's going to happen to them? Creamed. It would be a rotten coach and a terrible general who sent his people into battle unprepared. God won't do that. He gives us everything we need in order to face the difficulties. He knows they're coming. He's going to give us everything we need. And he doesn't just even send us because the best thing that we can have on our side isn't even armor or it's who? It's God himself. It's his very presence. The coach sends his team. The general sends his army. God says, I'll go with you. Let's go. Take my hand. Let's go face this one together. Look at this. Just before uh, the children of Israel are about to move into the promised land, God said this, be strong and courageous. Now, that's one thing we have to do. Courage, you know, what is courage, by the way? How would you define courage? Is courage being without fear? No, because if you're without fear, guess what? It isn't courage. My wife and I were having a conversation about this just the other day. It takes no courage for me to get on an airplane. I'm not afraid of it. I like to fly. Every time my wife gets on an airplane, it's courage. Because she doesn't like to fly. Every time we jump on an airplane, which we're going to do in about five weeks to go see our kids in Florida, I will sit back, relax, and won't bother me. She 
will have courage to do it. God says, I know you're afraid, but I need you to overcome that fear and act in spite of your fear. Courage isn't getting rid of fear. Courage is acting in spite of it. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God, what? Goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever you face, I'm there. I'm right there. A little bit later on in the book of Isaiah, he says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, I want you to notice, he didn't say, walk with me and there will be no flood. He didn't say, walk with me and there will be no flames. He said, walk with me and there will be a flood. Walk with me and there will be flames. This is it. I'm going to walk with you. And you will not be damaged or destroyed. You'll have to face them. You're going to get wet and it's going to get hot. But I'll get you through it. The first instance we really see of this in the New Testament is uh, not one of the apostles, you know, who stands bravely, it's a man named Stephen. He's a layman. And back then, the layman preached just like the apostles did. And Stephen was preaching. It's Acts chapter 7, if you want to take a look at it. And he's preaching, and he's telling the people the truth. He's telling them, hey, you killed Jesus Christ. You turned your back on God. And people are getting more and more angry and more and more angry. And he's preaching, and finally they're, they're, they're gnashing their teeth. How angry does a crowd have to be to go like that? They're so ticked off with this guy. He's about to die. They're going to kill him. Mob rule. Not because they're going to bring him to the authorities, but because they are going to take him out and stone him to death and kill him. And Jesus comes on the scene. And he doesn't stop the murder. This is what it says. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this made everybody so mad they took him out and killed him. The next thing that happens is they kill him. Jesus didn't come to stop that. Why do you think that at that moment the heavens opened up and Jesus allowed Stephen to see a picture, to see a view? Why? Tell me why. Have you ever seen Jesus like that? I haven't. Every persecution I've ever gone to, the heavens haven't opened up, and I haven't seen Jesus. Why not? Even if I'm being persecuted, it didn't happen that way. Why not? How about this, guys? It doesn't have to. Jesus didn't do this just for Stephen. Jesus did this for me. By faith, he says, look, I was right there with Stephen. Stephen got to see a picture of me. But do you think I'm... I'm not with you. Now, can you believe that by faith, Doug? Can you believe that I'm right there with you? And I have to say, yes, Jesus, by faith, I know you're right there. <laughs> okay, I don't get to see the picture, but you're there. This is the promise. God says, I will be with you whatever you are facing. That's the provision. And then he would do this. We hold on to the actual promise, and the promise is simply this, that there was a better world coming. 
that even though there's difficulties here and the persecution is part of life, but there's provision to be able to deal with that as God walks with us, there's this promise, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you're participating in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. In other words, you're going through this now, but guess what? Better days are coming. Jesus is returning, not this October 21st. Don't worry about that one, okay? But Jesus is returning. He could on October 21st, but don't sell your house, all right? He's coming, and there is a new world And the trials and troubles of this particular world are going to pass away. Don't be surprised if you're going through a difficult time, but you've got to remember better days are coming. Then he told them this, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the glory, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There's that blessed word again. This is Peter speaking. Paul, who's absolutely no stranger to the troubles and persecution that happened in this world, he was beaten, he was thrown out, he was chased, wrote this. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and mo- I hate that. I want to think that all of my troubles and difficulties are momentous. They're gigantic. That God is calling all the angels together saying, look at the terrible things that Doug Bailey's got to face. Paul says, you know what? It's peanuts. It's nothing. Not when you compare it to what's coming. If you just look here, yeah, it's tough, but if you can compare it, it's nothing. That's why he goes on to say, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Where are you going to look? When I look at my troubles and my difficulties, and I have them like everybody else, there are times I get depressed. Oh, Lord, woe is me. And look at all I've done for you, God. You're so lucky to have me. My father lets me talk like that every now and then. Not for long, but... And then I remember all that other people are facing. I remember right now there are brothers and sisters who are really dying. I mean literally dying. Not figuratively, literally dying. Every day for Jesus. And then I also look at what's heading, what's coming. And what am I going through to compare to what I'm going to receive? To the church of Rome, he said this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us i got to remember this, and you have to remember, this world is not my home. Okay, I know you got troubles. i got troubles. We all have troubles. If we want to compare troubles, we can sit around after the sermon, and we can then decide who's got the biggest troubles, all right? This is not one you want to win, by the way. But you know what? This world is my home. There's a better world coming for me. We have to, how many of you remember this particular hymn? Let's see if you remember it. It will be worth it all. Do you remember? Can you even sing it? How many of you remember the tune? It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face. 
All sorrow will erase, so bravely run the race till we see Christ. I'm not even a singer and I remember it. I haven't sung that song in probably 20 years. But you know what? It's got a good message. It's got something you've got to remember. Guys, it, we're just passing through. There is something waiting for us that you can't even begin to imagine. It's coming. One final thing to keep in mind is this. We expect the persecution. We embrace that provision. We hold to that promise. You honor the price. We get the presence of God and the promise of a new and future world that is phenomenal, but it didn't come free. It was purchased for us by the life of Jesus Christ. The only reason we get to know God and have his presence as we walk through these difficult times, the only reason that we have the promise that one day we will live with him in all eternity is because Jesus Christ died on a cross for you and for me. That's the only reason. It is not because we are great people. It's because of Jesus. Paul writes this to the church at Rome. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God loved us so much. He wanted to give us all that we need in this world and in eternity. And to do that, he had to give his son. And he did it. For you and for me, he did it. It's not because of our education or our personality or because we're such sweetie pies. It's because Jesus loved us so much that he said yes to the Father and he died for us. Every time I appropriate what God has given me, every time I appropriate and I bring into my life the power of God. I do so because of the broken body and the blood of Jesus every single time. No other reason. I will never earn it. I will never deserve it. I could preach for the next 60 years and be a great guy and I am not worthy of any of it. Jesus and only Jesus. So Paul goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, he says, you know what? We're going through times of trouble. It's like we're sheep to be slaughtered, but we are never separated from God. No, in all these things, read it with me. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can you be more than a conqueror? How about this? You didn't fight the battle. The conqueror comes in with the wounds, doesn't he? The conqueror comes in with the bloodstains. The conqueror comes in facing that battle, tired. You did it all for free. Let's continue. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God loves you. He is right there with you. Yeah, you're going through a tough time. He will be with you, and he gives you the promise 
of a new and better world, and you don't deserve any of it. It's Jesus. And so we're going to end this morning on this Memorial Day, Memorial Day weekend, remembering the price.